Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, a look back at the year since the on-campus shooting of University of Arizona professor Dr. Tom Meitzner. To catch us up on what's happened since October 5th, 2022, AZPM reporter Paolo Rodriguez, who has led our coverage of the shooting, joins us now in the studio. Paolo, welcome. Hi, Christopher. Thank you. So can you walk us through what's happened in over the last 365 days as you and I sit in the studio? Yeah. So on October 5th last year, Professor Dr. Thomas Meixner was shot and killed in his office, allegedly by a former graduate student, Murad Dervish. At the time, Dervish felt that he was unjustly expelled by the department after the department had reported to university officials for over a year that they had been harassed by the student. Since the shooting happened a year ago, as you were just talking about, we've learned a lot about what was going on and leading up to it. And it seems like, especially in light of the shooting, there was a lack of trust about the security and infrastructure that came to light. There were two reports that came out. One was an interim faculty report that showed that there was not only a lack of infrastructure and safety, but also a lack of trust between faculty and staff and UA administration when it comes to security risks on campus. Then the university released their own report in the spring showing a lot of the same themes that the interim faculty report shared. So one of the things that hasn't been talked about a lot, there have been plenty of stories that you have written and others about the university's response to this, is about the suspect, Murad Dervish. Where does his criminal trial stand? So the trial was initially set for this year. However, both sides are still compiling evidence. So the judge pushed the trial off to May of 2024. So next year at the end of the academic year, at this time, Dervish's counsel is looking for an insanity plea. How about the notice of claim from the family, which because the University of Arizona is a state institution, and we should note our station is housed on the campus of the university and the Arizona Board of Regents holds our license, it's not an actual lawsuit from the family, yet it's a notice of claim. Where is that going? A UA spokesperson gave tip to AZPM News yesterday on the anniversary that the university is working together with the family to find a resolution to the claim. What that resolution looks like, we don't know yet. Paola, thanks for coming in and sitting down with us, and thank you for a year of hard work and digging on this story. Thank you. We should note that AZPM asked for interviews with UA President Robert Robbins, Interim UA Police Chief Chris Olson, the new Director of the Threat Assessment Management Team, and Chief Safety Officer Steve Patterson. The university denied all four of our interview requests due to an observance of Dr. Meixner's death and scheduling issues. AZPM requested two of those four interviews in August. AZPM invited family, friends, students, and colleagues of Dr. Meixner to call in during the week marking the anniversary of his death and share some of their memories of him. One of the messages left for us was by Kathleen Meixner. Tom's wife. Thomas Meixner was my husband of nearly 25 years. 
and blessed to have known him for 27 years. Something that people might not know about Tom is that he was a man of routine and ritual. His routine connected with his mental life and practical living, and his ritual connected with his heart life. Some of his routines included eating eggs and power greens for breakfast as part of his nutrition plan for improved health, commuting to work by bike, cleaning the house as a family on Saturday morning with very specific chores designated for each of us, learning to speak Spanish by completing lessons on the Duolingo app daily, lecturing monthly at our church, and leading our Boy Scout troop at weekly meetings. An example of ritual for Tom was that he would stop at our son Sean's place of employment on his way home from work to say hello to him. He would regularly schedule lunch dates with Sean on campus. A ritual he performed at every cross-country meet we attended for our son Brendan was to review the course map ahead of time so that we could determine the best location for cheering and optimize the number of possible spots where we could root on the team. I remember one specific race where Tom brought his bicycle so that he could ride from point to point to support Brendan. An example ritual that is very precious to me is related to Tom's routine of setting the thermostat in our house quite low in the winter, especially at night, to save on our heating bill and to save the planet. Tom knew that I'm a cold-weather wimp, and I was not thrilled about the near-freezing temperature in our home. So when I walked into our bedroom at night, I would often find him ritually preheating my side of the bed by lying on my side so that it would not be so cold for me. He was such a sweet and thoughtful husband and father. I have so many fond memories of Tom. When our boys were little, I remember him being a daddy jungle gym for them as they crawled and climbed all over him, both giggling with delight. In our home, Tom would often belt out random songs in which he had revised the lyrics relating to something he was doing in the house or the yard. He would also break out dancing and sometimes would take my hand to join him with an attempt to look sultry, which he could not quite pull off but was adorable and endearing in the attempt. Some of our fondest and most precious memories are related to special outings or road trips, which he loved to plan. There was often an educational component to our destinations, and Tom, who had an incredible zest for learning and an amazing memory, was a consummate educator for our family. We could not go by an informational placard without stopping. Tom would read it aloud from beginning to end and then would comment on the content. It was a great source of pride for him to joyfully share knowledge with us. The greatest legacy that I have of Tom is our two loving and courageous sons, Sean and Brendan, who have inherited wonderful qualities from their father. This summer, when we were driving back from a family vacation, Sean and Brendan asked to stop at informational placards on our route in what is now a sacred ritual that was their dad's. I have learned so much about Tom since he died. Tom kept his family and work life mostly separate, and as I have read and heard the outpouring of stories from students, 
colleagues, and friends about Tom. I cannot believe he was accomplishing so much, connecting and collaborating with so many people, and doing such important work in the field of hydrology while being completely present to our family. I feel like we had such a beautiful portrait of who Tom was, and as the stories poured in, the portrait was enhanced by lovely highlights and colors, which demonstrate the masterpiece of Tom's full life. When the son of Tom's colleague initiated the idea of hashtag live like Tom, as a family, we started compiling a list of live like Tom sentiments, which has been a source of consolation and inspiration. The list included everything from eat large quantities of berries to knock on doors prior to an election, reminding people to vote to a recurring item that Tom had on his to-do list, call a friend. As I contemplate Tom's legacy and the meaning of hashtag live like Tom, I am incorporating my own experience with experiences shared by our community with me. I think live like Tom means being wholeheartedly connected to the people and causes which are meaningful to you. Tom had the unique and challenging experience of surviving cancer multiple times in his life. Perhaps due to that experience, he chose to be all in, in every way and every day of his life. Time for him was a gift, and he used it well. One of the things he did with that time, which I've heard time and time again, was his, he, that he encouraged others to recognize their own strengths and talents and to hashtag live, connect, and share them. He absolutely did this with Sean, Brendan, and me. As I try to surface from my grief, I imagine his voice telling me to live like Kathleen because he was such a loving, supportive husband. I'm so grateful for the time I had with Thomas Meixner. I love and miss him so much. We received an outpouring of messages. To hear the rest, visit our website, and thanks to all who called in and shared their memories. This week, we're looking back at the year since University of Arizona professor Tom Meixner was shot and killed in his campus office. Professor Christopher Castro was a friend of Dr. Meixner's and took over as interim department head at the Department of Hydrology and Atmospheric Sciences after Meixner was killed. He joined us in the studio in the days leading up to the anniversary. How are you? Well, um, it's been a year. Um, and uh, I have assumed a role as interim head of my department that I was not expecting to, to ever get, and certainly not under these types of circumstances. Um, and this is something I would never wish for any unit leader at a university to have to deal with. And so um, it's been a journey of um, working through trauma. I suffered symptoms of acute post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and that really impaired my ability to to function at a at a high level. And I think that experience of of having severe post-traumatic stress disorder was um, was common for all of our department victims. Having to then be a unit leader 
um, and a husband and father on top of all of that um, and keep my own research here going at the university. Um, that's all been really challenging, but also um, rewarding in its own way that um, the unit I lead is uh, really consists of such great and wonderful and supportive people. And I don't think I would have been able to keep pressing on without their continued support and, and love, really. We're in a process of recovery. And that process is not in a, in a straight line. There's good days and bad days. It's got to be so hard to walk in to that building every day. You all are still in the same building. For me, it's been kind of a double-edged sword, so to speak. And I am actually surrounded by solid walls and I have two doors. So in terms of my immediate sense of physical security in my own office, I, I actually feel quite, quite safe. Um, and maybe that's different for me because I wasn't one of those people that was physically present in the building so, but when I do go downstairs, I am mindful of walking by the main office and and the hallway in front of that uh, that first floor classroom where the events took place. So, um, and I know for for others, especially those that were here that day, um, they can't physically go into those spaces. We've tried to move um, most of the operations that were there on the first floor to offices on the second floor of the building. So our entire office staff is now located on the second floor and they are in enclosed offices behind walls and they have controlled access to their offices with panic buttons now installed. So we, we've done the best we can. Can I erase the emotional connotations of of the building, no. This this aspect of feeling safe in this, the physical space you work, um, it's an issue no matter where you're, you're at on campus. So this aspect of how we deal with the real physical um, security of our buildings and then how people psychologically feel working in those spaces, I think this is something we, we have to really think long and hard. Do you feel like you're getting the support from the university, be it um, emotional, mental, or, or the physical plant support from the university? Because you all are in the middle of it. The rest of us are outside looking in, even those of us who are on campus. So, so the university, I think it, it, it eventually did the best it could in this kind of situation to address those kinds of psychological support needs. But um, when you're talking about working through deep trauma, um, this is a process, it, it is not just a few months or even a year that it's, it's done. When you experience trauma associated with a shooting event, it, it lives with you for a lifetime. It changes you as a person. And so there is no quote like uh, fixing it or you become normal. It is more how you live, you live 
with that as a part of you and, um, and, and manage with it and grow. So then the next parts is we, we've got support for um, a search for a new department um, head and that hopefully will be initiating shortly. Um, there have been some challenges and with replacing Tom's position in biogeochemistry and, and this is largely due to, to budget challenges within the College of Science that all other departments are facing. Um, so I don't, I don't fault, uh, you know, our college or our, our, our university administration in any way. It's just the situation we find ourselves in with. Them. And then the last part is we were approached by university leadership about the possibility to relocate to the Chance building. Um, and this was something that even Tom had considered with the Department of Environmental Science um, during his lifetime. So it made sense to us to investigate the possibility and we went down the road a bit and eventually took a formal faculty vote to pursue a process where uh, we would engage in a, in a design and build planning process for the Chance Building with the hopes that we could be physically relocated there in 2026. We are all outsiders looking in. Mm -hmm. is, is there a story that everybody needs to know that hasn't been told yet? It's very difficult when you're a victim of a tragedy like this to be vulnerable and share your story. And so when I have had to approach dealing with issues of trauma in this affected unit, I can ask a question and get a thousand different responses. So people's emotional response to tragedy is very intimate and it's very personal. And what you learn as a unit leader is you have to be compassionate and sensitive and loving every day to work through people's unique uh, needs in coping through trauma. And you're, you're never going to sat perfectly satisfy anyone. But as Tom said to me uh, once, he said, don't let the perfect be the enemy of good. And so you, you go through each day, you do the best you can, and that's all you can do. That was Professor Christopher Castro, the interim head of the University of Arizona Department of Hydrology and Atmospheric Sciences. Over the last year, the University of Arizona faculty and the administration have been at odds over the way the university handled the aftermath. Professor Layla Hudson is the chair of the faculty senate. She told us things are getting better. As we look back over the last year, we feel like faculty senate and faculty governance played a very important role as one of the partners in the discussion about campus safety. And we did that by uh, starting a ad hoc general faculty committee called the Committee on Safety for All 
they put out a report very promptly, even as the university administration was contracting with the PACS group, the external contractor, uh, and other contractors like Steve Patterson, who subs subsequently was hired here as the vice president for uh, safety. So what unfolded over the, com over the next months as we moved into 2023 was that the interim safety report uh, put out by our faculty committee uh, made some really important contributions to the discussion, not only about the logistical aspects of physical safety, or rather some of the deficits that we had that led to the confusion on campus in the aftermath of this tragic murder, uh, but also about a larger point, about the culture of trust. And what our committee began to discover is that there were issues, there were lapses of communication, of culture, of trust uh, that allowed a series, an escalating series of violent, racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic threats against the Department of Hydrology and Atmospheric Sciences uh, to keep on moving. That there was never a point at which uh, those were adequately addressed, identified, contained, and stopped. We were disappointed by the administration's disregard for the work of our faculty committee and its exclusive focus on the work of the outside contractors. And uh, when we found the university to be dismissive of our obligation and our contribution to help uh, understand safety issues on campus, uh, it ultimately led to a vote of no confidence. Uh, for President Robbins and his senior leadership team. That was an inflection point. Uh, we got the attention of the administration with that act. And two members of the leadership team, the provost and the police chief, ended up leaving the university yes. without a lot of explanation, so we cannot officially say that that is why they left, but mm -hmm. there was some timing. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that those uh, departures were certainly not unrelated to our vote of no confidence. And while there continue to be aspects of leadership and composition of the senior leadership team that we would like to have um, addressed, we were pleased that we got the president's ear and uh, that he has really become a partner with the faculty in trying to address and face and solve some of the big issues that we all face together. This week, we remember Tom Meixner, and that is the focus of this particular week. But as we move on, people are noticing that some of those logistical, physical safety things that we identified and called for uh, uh, changes in, those have been and are being addressed by Steve Patterson and his team. Uh, he has a commission which includes several of the faculty members who are on that original faculty committee, which disbanded in the spring because of the hostile reaction from the administration before the vote of no confidence. So we now have a vice president in charge of these things. There is someone accountable. There is someone to call. I look at the classroom I'm teaching in this year compared to the classroom I was in last year. There are 
new safety measures. So there is an intercom that you can keep on all the time. There's an automatic door locking uh, device where you can break the glass if necessary. It's not something you would do in a non-emergency situation, but you could break the glass or remove the plastic or what have you and lock the door and have continuously monitored audio from that particular classroom. So to try and mitigate some of the concerns that people had initially about you don't necessarily want a locking door uh, in, in certain kinds of emergency situations. With these changes, the interface of communication between the faculty and also staff and students and the university administration is broader, wider, and denser than it ever was, uh, you know, over the last few years, certainly. So we are, from that uh, perspective, in a better place. It will never bring Tom Meixner back, but we hope that uh, going forward, we at least have the communication systems, if not the perfect system yet, for addressing threats and not moving on without uh, confronting threats and risks to our safety. On a sliding scale, we had the no confidence vote mm -hmm. last academic year. The other end of that would be full confidence. So on, on that scale, where is the faculty senate with the administration? Somewhere between full no confidence and full confidence, I would imagine. Well, I would say on a scale of one to 10, we're around a 5.5 or a six, which is good progress. It's good progress. There is, again, a forum and an openness to talking. There are many obstacles. Some of them are personnel obstacles. Some of them are financial obstacles. Some of them are cultural and political obstacles. Uh, but I think that I do see us moving in the right direction. And I do see that we have many partners in the administration, including President Robbins. The real question is how do we get there on such a big, moving, dynamic, open, energetic campus uh, in which there is disagreement, right? There is evolution of ideas. We just need to protect that. That was UA professor Layla Hudson, the chair of the faculty senate. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all of our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR app. Paula Rodriguez is our producer this week with production help from Zach Ziegler, Desiree Tucker, and Koryama Lamadrid. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.